Well, let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that thou would meet with us as we consider thy word. Uh, it is a book of life. It is a, a letter of love uh, unto us, thy people. Uh, we pray that thou would stir up our hearts and grant to us faith uh, in uh, Christ, faith in uh, his word. Uh, forgive us of our sin and transgressions, Lord, as we approach thee, uh, that our minds might not be hindered uh, by, by sin, that thou would give to us a clean conscience, a pure heart. In Jesus' name, amen. We're focusing this evening in John chapter 9 upon verses 18 through 25. But again, let us begin a little bit earlier in the chapter just to pick up the context. So let's begin reading at John 9, verse 13, and we'll read through 25. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. They say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou? of him, that he hath opened thine eyes. He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore said his parents, He is of age, ask him. Then again called they the man that was blind, and said unto him, Give God the praise, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. By way of a brief review, in the previous study, the hilled man was brought by his neighbors, brought by his friends, before the Jewish Sanhedrin to give testimony concerning his miraculous healing. The Sanhedrin, you recall, Ask how he was healed, which he tells them. They are more interested in the how question than in the who question. How was he healed rather than who healed him? Which is always dangerous, and not to begin with who, especially when we're talking about religious matters. Not that the how question is unimportant, but the who question uh, is most important. 
The Sanhedrin prejudices uh, the testimony of the healed man by declaring that Jesus is not sent by God because he is an alleged Sabbath breaker, uh, because he healed the blind man on the Sabbath day. Uh, they're supposed to be a church court, they're hearing testimony, and they've already judged the case, basically, uh, that Jesus is a sinner. The healed man, at this point, uh, boldly challenges them with uh, his own question in verse 16. How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? When he is asked who Jesus is, uh, he declares in verse 17, he is a prophet. That is all he can affirm at this particular point in time. Uh, Jesus, he doesn't believe, uh, is a sinner, but rather is a prophet. Now, having briefly reviewed, let's uh, begin with our text where we find ourselves this evening in John 9, 18. John 9, 18. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. So in spite of the testimony of the man born blind that he was healed by Jesus and the testimony of those neighbors and friends that had brought him to the Sanhedrin, these Jewish leaders manifest uh, such an unwillingness to believe the testimony of this man. Uh, it's not that they lack sufficient evidence. Uh, they even had the uh, evidence that this man begged probably for some uh, extended period of time in very public place near the, the temple itself. So uh, they would have seen this man, no doubt, uh, the Sanhedrin, the members of this Jewish Supreme Court. Uh, so they, they are looking for reasons not to believe that this man was actually blind. Uh, and that therefore that Jesus healed him of his blindness. They lack the willing, willingness to believe because their hearts were darkened. Uh, their minds were calloused. In effect, no amount, no amount of evidence was going to change their mind at this particular point. They were unbelievers uh, in Christ, and again, even the testimony of the man is not going to be sufficient. Um, this is something very important, I think, for us to realize about our uh, own hearts, and uh, especially about the hearts of, of people who we may bear testimony and witness to about Jesus Christ. All the evidence in the world in itself is not going to convince an unbeliever. It's not that we shouldn't present evidence. It's not that we should not know the truth and present the truth because God does use means to bring unbelievers to himself but it's not the evidence, it's not the truth that is presented in itself that is going to change their heart, their mind at all, their will, uh, because it's darkened, it's dead. Until God gives light, until God raises them spiritually from the dead, they're going to continue to discount, uh, disbelieve, uh, and not receive the evidence. 
it again I think it's important for us to realize that because we can become very discouraged uh, that we have shared and shared and, and talked and talked with with somebody and there's been uh, more than enough evidence and of the truth given to them and we have to realize again um, our job is not to change the heart our job is to present the truth it's it's God's uh, job to convert the soul and to turn the soul unto Christ and so that's that's the truth that we must ever keep in mind uh, is that that's God's work and so let us not um, act as though we are God and that we are going to uh, by way of continuing uh, this process of challenging and challenging uh, that that in and of itself is going to change somebody's heart uh, prayer uh, humbling ourselves calling upon the Lord to do his work but again I just want to emphasize uh, we need to uh, realize that uh, sharing the truth is very very important though you notice uh, in verse 18 it says but the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight and then the little word until until they called the parents of him that had received his sight uh, that simply means that uh, the parents testimony um, that uh, we will see in just a moment uh, brought further witness to the fact that their son was born blind and uh, so there does appear to be at that particular point you know uh, even unbelievers I suppose can be shamed into saying you know basically um, uh, that that has to be right that has to be true in certain uh, instances and so here the Sanhedrin they call the parents and in doing so they're basically bringing uh, the most significant witnesses to bear testimony to what their son had just given to the Sanhedrin Verse 19 says, And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? So in an effort to discount the miracle of Jesus, the Jewish leaders uh, have made a tragic mistake in bringing, as we said, the two most credible witnesses uh, to the miracle performed by the Lord Jesus not that they were there when Jesus healed the man not that they saw Jesus heal the man but they are powerful witnesses because this is their son they know that he was born blind but now they they can testify that, that he sees uh, the Sanhedrin imply here that uh, and insinuate it seems by way of the question that they ask in verse 19 is this your son who notice who ye say was born blind in other words we don't believe that he was born blind but is this your son who you say uh, was born blind so they are insinuating that the parents uh, have conspired in some way with Jesus to promote this miracle they imply that the parents are either imposters not as parents whom ye say uh, is what they attribute to the parents or that um, that uh, they're lying uh, that he was born blind and uh, 
I think it tells us that a, a court uh, should uh, receive testimony very fairly, uh, whether it's a civil court or whether it's an ecclesiastical court. Uh, it should not bend uh, the testimony or force or manipulate the testimony uh, by way of the uh, leading questions uh, that they ask. You know, that's, that's certainly true of a court. A court should be uh, in hearing testimony, should be impartial, should not uh, uh, be prejudiced. A court should uh, not be bribed either by gifts or by persons, uh, but they should be impartial. This court, the Sanhedrin, is certainly not expressing or evidencing that they are impartial. Uh, they don't express that or evidence that at the trial of Christ uh, in condemning him uh, to death either. But if a court... Um, ought to be impartial, not that we necessarily as individuals, uh, we're not a church court as individuals, uh, but nevertheless, what is true in principle with regard to a court, I would submit to you, we ought to as well individually uh, be, strive to be fair, strive to be just in what we hear, uh, that we ought not to be either partial in hearing testimony, nor to be gullible. That we have to be reasonable. We have to listen carefully. And if there are two sides to a particular um, uh, event or story or whatever, that we need to be very, very careful. Um, that we're not um, being partial in the way we receive or hear, and perhaps, again, many times we shouldn't be hearing things anyway, uh, but nevertheless, I think we all too often, I think true, true of all of us, but I think that it's simply a weakness that we have to simply uh, either be very gullible and receive uh, immediately what someone says, or to be immediately set against and to be partial. Um, uh, rather than being impartial to what someone says. Verses 20 through 21. His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself. The parents here affirm that the man that had been healed by Jesus was their son. So they, uh, they answer that question, this is our son. And they answer the second question, that he indeed had been born blind. That response really quickly closes uh, the plot of the Jewish leaders to frame here the narrative as a conspiracy between the parents and Jesus uh, uh, because, again, they affirm exactly what the Son has said. And uh, uh, for the Sanhedrin to uh, call these parents liars would certainly be at this point, as they have uh, given their testimony, uh, could be very quickly uh, demonstrated uh, to be uh, false on the part of the uh, Sanhedrin. So they knew that this was their son. They, they declare that he was born blind, but they also say, we don't know how he was healed. Perhaps, again, um, they, had <clears throat> they had just heard recently, uh, they had not 
had an opportunity to follow up with their own son as to what had happened. And so uh, they are uh, declaring they don't know really anything as to the details uh, as to his healing. I think that it's clever uh, on their part uh, to simply say what they um, did rather than speculating. And uh, I think that, uh, again, in a court situation, um, anytime witnesses begin to speculate, that's not good. They need to simply say what they specifically know to be true, uh, but not go beyond that. And so it was, it was good. It was uh, uh, the right approach to say uh, that uh, they don't know how he was healed. Uh, the Jewish leaders, it would appear, uh, in demanding this testimony, that uh, they had an agenda. They wanted to squash uh, this this testimony of his of Christ's miracle. Uh, they want to cancel. That's a you know, term that we certainly use today. Um, uh, they wanted to cancel Jesus. They wanted to cancel the testimony of the parents. They wanted to cancel the testimony of the man himself that he was healed. And so, um, uh, realize that this cancel culture uh, is really nothing more than mob rule. Uh, that's all that it is. It's just a, um, a mob ganging up upon um, uh, a person uh, or a group and seeking uh, to destroy them, destroy their name, destroy their character, just to cancel them in, entirely. Uh, well, that was in effect what was happening here uh, by way of the agenda that the Sanhedrin had. They wanted to cancel their testimony the parents, again, very, I think, uh, a clever um, move on their part. They, they shift the weight of testimony from themselves back to their son and say that he is of legal age, uh, so he's not a minor, uh, so let him speak for himself. Let him testify for himself before the Sanhedrin. Um, the age at which someone, uh, a, a man anyway, was deemed to be uh, able to testify uh, was uh, 13 years of age. A young man uh, was when he became uh, a son of the law, bar mitzvah, a son of, a, a son of the law. And, um, and so that, uh, we don't know exactly how old this man was, but he was at least uh, uh, in his majority years, not a minor, not under 13, and uh, able legally to speak for himself. And so um, we learn in just a moment why the parents did that, why they shifted it back uh, to their son rather than um, if they knew more information, rather than giving more information, uh, they uh, give that back to uh, their son when they say, he shall speak for himself in verse 21. John nine twenty two. These words spake his parents, now we learn why they said that, because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. So if the parents knew more about how their son was healed, they didn't reveal it to the uh, Sanhedrin. Uh, they, again, uh, only uh, told specifically um, 
that uh, he's our son, and we don't know sp the specifics as to how he was healed. So they may have, it's possible that, uh, that they um, uh, knew that Christ had heard through the grapevine, through neighbors, through friends, or whatever, that they had heard something as to who had healed their son. But it says that they did not uh, want to go on in their testimony because they feared being excommunicated um, from the synagogue, being put out. When it says uh, he should be put out of the synagogue, <coughs> uh, that's a very technical term to be cast out, to be put out, uh, would be to be excommunicated. And so they feared that they would be excommunicated uh, and that's the reason that they uh, put the, uh, shifted the responsibility back to their son um, out of fear, basically. Um, and uh, whether, again, uh, they knew more and than, than they said they did, uh, we, we don't have really any way of knowing that but for sure, but it does seem to indicate when it says that they shifted the responsibility back upon the son that they feared the Jews uh, who had already said that they were going to excommunicate anyone who confessed Christ. So that might leave the door open uh, to their knowing at least something about who healed uh, their son through through uh, talking with other people. So they feared being excommunicated, uh, uh, which was uh, to be treated as an unclean Gentile, to be treated as a heathen or as a wicked publican, tax collector. Um, those were two large categories uh, of, uh, of people that uh, the Jews would have put outside of fellowship and communion uh, with, within the synagogue. Um, those who were un basically unbelievers, uh, Gentiles or heathens, and those who were tax collectors who may have been Jews but um, lived such scandalous lives uh, by way of cheating and robbing and stealing uh, from people uh, in collecting taxes. Uh, Rome would tell tax collectors uh, uh, this is how much tribute should be received from an individual and you can basically charge above that whatever you want to charge which is for yourself. And so they would uh, oppress uh, the people and so again they, they were viewed as being uh, very, very wicked uh, by the um, Jewish population just you know, because of how they oppressed the people. And so when someone was excommunicated, they were either ex excommunicated as, um, or viewed as, as being uh, an unbeliever or as a scandalous person uh, to be put out of the synagogue. And that's very similar to what we find right in Matthew 8, 18, 17 where Jesus uh, speaks of, uh, again, this process of, of uh, when a brother trespasses against another brother and how to handle that situation one-on-one, -on -one, first of all. And uh, if there is uh, no uh, repentance, no reconciliation at that stage, them to bring two or three witnesses, and uh, the, when those attempts uh, fail, then to bring it before the church, the eldership of the church, and in verse 17, if he shall neglect to hear them, that is the, uh, uh, the, the witnesses, tell it unto the church, that's the representative church, the eldership of the church, 
But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee, notice, as, an un, as a heathen man and a publican. And so he is basically to be treated as one um, that is outside the fellowship and communion of the church. <clears throat> so the Sanhedrin here, uh, as we look at what the parents feared, they certainly wielded great power uh, in functioning as a church court. Uh, even members of the Sanhedrin kept silent their support for the Lord Jesus in order that they might not be excommunicated themselves and in order that they might retain their positions of power. Uh, John chapter 12 verses 42 through 43 says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, also many believed on him, that is, on Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Likewise, when we see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, giving to the Lord Jesus a very honorable and loving uh, burial, taking his body from the cross and then going through the procedure of washing it, washing the body, uh, wrapping the body, using various um, spices, uh, in the rolls around the body and then putting the body of the Lord Jesus into the tomb of Joseph Arimathea. Uh, in verse 38, John 19:38, we read, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, uh, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight. Then they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. So the Sanhedrin as a whole uh, did not care about the truth. There may have been some who were kind of uh, hiding secret uh, Christians among them uh, that were hiding uh, from the um, Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin as a whole. Uh, but they had a, a predetermined agenda and a predetermined um, decision uh, already. They, they were already resolved to silence any public testimony that might come forth uh, on Jesus' behalf. Verse 23, John 9, 23. <clears throat> Therefore said his parents, he is of age, ask him. So their response, as we've noted, was driven by fear, the consequence of being excommunicated. Let me just say uh, something else, just uh, very briefly about excommunication. Excommunication is a lawful censure uh, in the church, and it ought not to be taken lightly at all. But it is not designed, excommunication is not designed by the Lord to be punitive 
uh, in nature. It's not to be uh, viewed as retributive justice, getting even, punishing someone, um, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, that's not the nature of excommunication. It's rather to be corrective uh, out of love for the individual. Its purpose is to bring about humility in a member of the church who has fallen into and has continued in a scandalous sin or error. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was there, uh, you'll recall, the Apostle Paul recounts a situation of a man living with his father's wife um, and uh, being a scandalous uh, sin. And uh, the Apostle Paul t says to uh, the brethren, they are the elders of, of the church, that uh, this man ought to be put out of the church, cast out of the uh, uh, communion, the communion and fellowship of the church. And um, in order that his soul, his spirit, might be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. So it had in view uh, his repentance. It had in view uh, his return and restoration uh, to uh, Christ and to uh, fellowship and communion within the church. Likewise, in 1 Timothy 1.20, <clears throat> there we find two, two individuals specifically mentioned, 1 Timothy 1.20, I'll start with verse uh, 19. Holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan. That's a language that is used also in 1 Corinthians 5, for excommunication to, to, be, to be delivered uh, to Satan uh, for the destruction of the flesh um, uh, in order to be taught uh, through um, allowing Satan to buffet, uh, allowing Satan to afflict both the soul and the body. Uh, again, that's not to say uh, that the person that is turned over in that sense, um, it's not saying that they um, uh, aren't believers, uh, but rather that uh, there is a place and a time where the Lord does, for example, uh, Job was not excommunicated, but you recall um, that Job... Uh, and what was going on behind the scenes that the, Satan had sought permission from God to be able to afflict Job, and the Lord gave Satan permission to do so in that particular instance. And so, uh, just because the Lord allows Satan to afflict the body of an individual does not necessarily mean that that person is not a believer, a true believer. Job was a true believer. Uh, he did not fall away from Christ. Um, and yet, uh, he was delivered over to be afflicted by, by Satan. And so likewise, in excommunication, that may uh, be the case as well, that someone may be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, um, uh, the, the, the flesh here, uh, as I said, is either the physical flesh or flesh is also used of that which um, uh, the moral flesh, uh, uh, you know, the, the flesh that uh, is uh, corrupt, you know, a fleshly nature, uh, and that corruption within to destroy that part of a person that has uh, gone off into um, 
sin and uh, living in a, in a way that is bringing such a scandal uh, to the name of Christ. And so that person can be dealt with in that, in that way. Uh, just as God disciplines his own children out of love for their spiritual well-being, uh, Hebrews chapter 12 uh, goes into great detail about God um, administering spiritual scourging uh, to his children because he's a loving father and he will not allow us to remain uh, uh, in our sin without consequences. If we're going to choose to walk in rebellion against the Lord, uh, the Lord says if uh, we belong to him, he'll chastise us, he'll discipline us. And so just as God does that, as we see in Hebrews 12, so the Lord Jesus gives that loving discipline, gives loving discipline uh, to the eldership of the church to do the same thing as we've just noted in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Uh, church discipline is one of the two keys of the kingdom given to uh, Christ-appointed ministers and elders of the church. Um, discipline, uh, the key of jurisdiction is called either the key of government, the key of jurisdiction, the key of discipline. Uh, it can be referred to, that, that key can be referred uh, to uh, in, in regard to those three ways uh, historically. But um, Jesus speaks of keys uh, in the plural. And uh, so there is an additional key to the key of discipline, and that's the key of knowledge, the key of doctrine, the key of truth. That key is also given to uh, the uh, eldership particularly to ministers in their preaching and in their teaching that they have uh, given to them those two keys uh, for the benefit uh, of, uh, of the kingdom, to open the door by way of um, uh, these ordinances uh, uh, to those who would come unto, unto Jesus Christ. Not that we, not that uh, anyone has to come through ministers uh, in order to get to Christ, but uh, Christ has appointed ministers and elders as, as again, um, his stewards, his representatives, uh, in using these keys, the key of discipline and the key of knowledge, uh, to uh, uh, direct people to Jesus Christ. Luke 11.52 speaks specifically, it says the key, it mentions the key of knowledge uh, uh, there in Luke 11.52. So because excommunication and all church discipline uh, is corrective in nature, uh, it is then restorative. That's the, that's the goal, is restoration, uh, not not to permanently leave somebody um, uh, in that state, but it, the goal is, is restoration back into the fellowship and communion of the church where there is evidence of repentance. And um, again, that evidence of repentance, uh, depending upon the nature or the reason for the excommunication, um, uh, may uh, be needed for a shorter period of time or may be needed for a longer period of time. Again, uh, just depending upon what happened with regard to the excommunication. But it, uh, there needs to be um, uh, sincere evidence of repentance uh, in order to be restored. And uh, again, it's the eldership uh, that just as, as the eldership that uh, is given that key uh, to excommunicate, so it is the eldership uh, on behalf of Christ that restores and receives on behalf of Christ one who is brought back into communion and fellowship uh, in Christ's church. And so excommunication is not a sentence to hell. Um, 
uh, in the Roman Catholic Church and perhaps uh, even uh, other churches might uh, falsely and wrongly teach that excommunication is a sentence in itself to, uh, to hell. It may in fact it may in fact be administered against uh, uh, one who is an unbeliever, uh, who, is a who is a hypocrite, who is not truly a believer in the church. And uh, the, uh, it may simply uh, confirm uh, what is actually true in that person's heart, um, that he, he is not a believer, especially if he n never repents. Uh, that would tend to, again, confirm that. But excommunication in itself is not a sentence uh, to hell, uh, but rather, as we said, setting a member uh, apart, putting a member uh, outside of the fellowship and communion of the saints. Though, even when one is excommunicated, one is not deprived or um, unable to hear the word of God preached. And so even those who are excommunicated um, um, may come and hear uh, God's word preached, may hear the prayers of God's people being called out to God for their restoration, for their repentance. And uh, so they uh, certainly can um, come and they can hear uh, those ordinances and pray that God applies those ordinances to their um, softening of their heart rather than to the hardening of their heart. Verse 24, Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. So they, they start off with the man um, they excuse him, dismiss him. They call the parents, and um, uh, they come and they give testimony. They they dismiss the parents and they call the man back uh, for a second time uh, to appear uh, before them. So it appears that the healed man was not present at the time that his parents were giving testimony. Um, likely. Uh, it would seem because they'd already predetermined what they were going to, how they were going to judge this case. Uh, likely, they were in having the parents and the man not present at the same time. They were hoping to find inconsistencies in the testimony of the man versus the testimony of his parents in order to, again, use that as a way to cancel uh, their uh, their uh, testimony concerning this miracle. So the healed man is cross-examined once again. This time the Sanhedrin approaches the man from the perspective that he was truly healed of his blindness. Notice in verse 24, Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. Well, give God the praise for what? They're acknowledging that now that he was healed. So they're no longer clinging uh, to this idea uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, he was not healed um, or that he was not born blind. Uh, now they're say, saying uh, the, the whole approach has changed. Now they're saying rather than give glory to... Uh, Jesus, uh, give glory to God. Jesus is a sinner, uh, they say, the Sanhedrin says. We know that this man is a sinner, but give praise to God. Uh, again, when they say, we know this man is a sinner, what they're saying is um, that he's a scandalous man. Uh, that's the, the, they're, they're not simply saying uh, he is generally a, a sinner as all men are sinners. They're not simply saying that. Um, that would be bad enough. Uh, that would be wrong. That would be blasphemy to say even that. But, but what they're saying is that he is a sinner in, uh, 
like a tax collector was called a sinner, or prostitutes were called sinners. Uh, and uh, when it says that Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, um, I, I, it, it emphasizes that even the chief of sinners uh, he called uh, to repentance. And so here they're accusing Jesus of being a chief sinner, um, that he is a sinner in that sense. It would appear that the healed man uh, does not uh, want uh, to declare that outrightly that Jesus is a sinner. Um, he says in verse 25, he answered and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know that whereas I was blind, now I see. He, he seems to, again, similar to the parents who wanted to shift the responsibility back to the son rather than um, you know, face the possibility of being excommunicated. Here, this man who was healed seems to be taking a similar approach. Uh, he's not willing to say, no, Jesus is not a sinner. Uh, he doesn't want to contradict what the Pharisees or what the Sanhedrin had just said when they said, we know that this man is a sinner. Um, but rather, uh, he takes the approach to say, well, whether he is or whether he isn't, I don't know. Uh, so uh, I think that 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 probably was not accurate because he had already declared him, you remember back in verse 16 that he's a prophet or in verse 17 that he's a prophet. Now if he's a prophet, if this man believes that Jesus is a prophet from God, sent by God uh, to teach the truth and to, and to perform miracles, even if he did not yet know and believe that he was the son of God, but if he believed that he was a prophet, uh, he wouldn't be saying concerning a prophet that he or implying that that, that prophet was a sinner, you know, as, as we've just described, a sinner, someone living in scandalous sin. So in effect, I think uh, he's fearful, just like the parents were, of being excommunicated. And uh, so he's kowtowing, it seems, uh, uh, here to the Sanhedrin for the same reason he does not want to be excommunicated. Uh, so he's, uh, in effect, he's contradicting his previous testimony where he said that he's a prophet uh, when he says, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. But what we will learn as we proceed through John chapter 9 is, is very encouraging. Um, he does meet up with Jesus again. And Jesus tells him who he is. That he is uh, the Son of God. That he is um, the Messiah. And he then... Uh, is very bold to declare who Jesus is, and he is excommunicated uh, from the Sanhedrin, or from the uh, synagogue. He is excommunicated. And uh, so, at this particular point, cowering in fear would appear, uh, but uh, God gives him the strength, uh, God gives him the grace uh, to stand firmly. One last uh, uh, point I would make when he says um, basically I once was blind but now I see in verse 25 he says uh, one thing I know that whereas I was blind now I see um, this is this is a testimony of uh, his own personal experience and I don't want to 
uh, discount or minimize personal testimonies of how people came to Christ uh, or what the Lord has done uh, in uh, your life or mine that uh, we uh, declare in, in, in bearing witness to Christ's uh, grace, Christ's power, Christ's mercy. So I don't want to in any way discount the importance and significance of, of a testimony. That's what this is. Uh, I once was blind, but now I see. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a personal testimony. Uh, he doesn't have the theology at this point. Uh, he hasn't been taught, uh, apparently. Uh, and so he doesn't have the theology down. He doesn't have uh, the, the, uh, the doctrine down. But, but he does share his personal testimony here. Um, a personal testimony, however, uh, uh, this, this particular qualification as we close, a personal testimony, though it is very useful, and though it does and can be used to show forth the power, the mercy, the grace of, of Jesus Christ, um, a personal testimony can also be abused, uh, misused. Uh, when a personal testimony becomes more important than the Word of God, more important than the truth of God, uh, then we have made a personal testimony to be sovereign, uh, and rather than God and His Word being sovereign. Then everything hinges upon a personal testimony, what I experienced. Whether, again, it's in keeping with God's word or not, what I experienced has to be right because I experienced it. And um, as we know, perhaps in our own lives, um, experiences I've had uh, in the past, um, uh, going through various phases of my Christian life um, uh, early on in uh, Pentecostalism uh, uh, and passing through those times and having various experiences which I look back and I say those experiences do not measure up with what God's Word taught. I cannot hold to that, those experiences and say uh, that those were from God if they are contrary to what God's yeah. Word teaches. And so again we have to be careful with regard to experience. Exper personal testimony and experience is, is a blessing when it is agreeable to the Word of God. Uh, but it can be very dangerous and detrimental if experiences are contrary to what God's Word teaches. And so we have to always judge our experiences according to God's Word and not judge God's Word according to our experiences. Uh, we will be led into all manner of falsehood and error if we get that wrong. And so, again, let's, uh, by God's grace, uh, be thankful for the experience that God gives to us, that it's not merely something um, mental, um, something that's in our mind, but that God does work upon our affections, God does work upon our will, God does work uh, uh, in our bodies, uh, but let us always uh, take those experiences back and say, is this agreeable to what God says in his word? All right, let's stand in prayer as we close. Heavenly Father, thank thee for thy truth. Thy word is truth. Uh, and though, Lord, thou hast uh, worked in our hearts and our lives in such a way that, that we experience the work of thy spirit and we see evidences of thy grace and mercy in our lives, in our hearts, in our affections and desires, uh, in our will. Nevertheless, Lord, we... Uh, Humble ourselves before thee and uh, do pray, guide and lead us 
uh, according to thy truth. Uh, let us not go uh, down the road that so many have gone and being misled by experiences. Father, we, we thank thee uh, for this time of study. Apply thy truth to our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions uh, from the study this evening? Comments? Okay, thank you. You are dismissed.